0: The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. News Talk 850 WFTL presents Joyce Kaufman No Restraint. Here's Joyce Kaufman. In this edition of the No Restraint Podcast, I'm going to be talking about The Bill of Rights, that's right, and two of the fundamental rights which are contained in that brilliant document, the First and the Second Amendment. Apparently, Americans don't take this very seriously and will give up those rights often without even thinking about the value that they're giving up. So I saw a great piece in the Free Press by Ilya Shapiro who happens to be an attorney about where does free speech end and where does lawbreaking begin? And he sums it up pretty nicely because he says, and one would have to agree that the First Amendment does not give carte blanche to intimidation and harassment. So even anti-Semites might have the right to free speech. And that's true. We read that in Pamela Peresky and Nadine Strassen's article last week in the Free Press. Since the massacre by Hamas on October 7th, they've been taking full advantage, the pro Palestinian, actually the anti Semites, to take full advantage of that, especially on college campuses. Pro Palestinian groups have harassed and even assaulted Jewish students. Protesters have interrupted courses and taken over buildings. Ivy League professors have called Hamas's attack exhilarating and awesome. Students have torn down posters of missing Israeli children. Others have chanted and even projected onto university buildings, slogans like from the river to the sea, globalize the Intifada and glory to our martyrs. In response to such activities, universities have suspended or banned student groups like Students for Justice in Palestine. Alumni have pulled their donations and publicly stated that they're not gonna hire students who sign letters blaming Israel for the massacre. Republican lawmakers have suggested revoking the student visas of those who participate in anti-Israel protests. Those who care deeply about free speech have to be asking ourselves many questions at this urgent moment. What should we make of the calls to punish Hamas apologists on campuses? After all, this is America, where you have the right to say even the vilest things. Yes, many of the same students who on October 6th called for harsh punishment for microaggressions, whatever that is, they're now chanting for the elimination of the world's only Jewish state. But Americans are entitled to be hypocrites. Don't these students tend Hamas slogans as the neo-Nazis did to march in 1977 in Skokie, Illinois, a town which was then inhabited by many Holocaust survivors. I would put my free speech bona fides up against anyone. Ilya Shapiro says I'm also a lawyer and sometime law professor who recognizes that not all speech-related questions can be resolved by invoking the words First Amendment. Much of what we've witnessed is not in fact speech, but it's conduct designed specifically to harass, intimidate and terrorize Jews. Other examples involve disruptive speech that can properly be regulated by school rules. Opposing or taking action against such behavior in no way violates the core constitutional principle that the government can't punish you for expressing your beliefs. The question, as always, is where to draw the line and who's doing the line drawing. And here are some of the most pressing questions those who care about civil liberties and protecting the rights of Jewish students are asking. What are some examples of protest activities that are rightly considered conduct rather than speech? In drawing the line between speech and conduct, some cases are easy, beating someone up as happened in Columbia and Tulane, is assault. Crowding around someone in a threatening manner, like a group of Harvard students, including an editor of the Harvard Law Review, did to an Israeli student who filmed their protest is commonly known as the crime of menacing. A pattern of actions designed to frighten and harass someone, like forcing Jewish students into the Cooper Union Library while pounding on the doors and windows, is stalking. Defacing someone's property by spray painting swastikas and slogans, as happened at American University, is vandalism. So is tearing down posters, at least on private property and in most campus settings, and masking at a protest also a hallmark of events sponsored by the Students for Justice in Palestine organization is illegal in many states, a remnant of the battle against KKK intimidation. The proper response to such behavior, regardless of how expressive someone may claim to be, is the same response we'd have to instances of assault or stalking or intimidation and other crimes in any other context. Identify, arrest and prosecute the perpetrators. And in the campus setting, expel them. Are genocidal slogans like globalize the Intifada or from the river to the sea protected by the First Amendment? It depends on the context. The Cornell student who posted death threats online to Jewish students was rightly arrested. Because as the Supreme Court held, the Constitution doesn't protect those statements where the speaker means to communicate a serious expression of an intent to commit an act of unlawful violence to a particular individual or group of individuals. In addition to such true threats and not simply political hyperbole, The First Amendment does not protect the incitement of violence, which the Supreme Court has defined as speech that is directed at inciting or producing imminent lawless action and is likely to incite or produce such action. The courts have set a high bar on meeting this standard, but it's surely been reached in some recent cases both on and off campus. Take, for example, the pro-Palestine rally in Los Angeles, where in the course of the event, a 69-year-old man holding an Israeli flag was struck and killed. Assuming eliminationist or other violent slogans were chanted there, it would be hard to imagine a more direct connection. But a group of students marching through campus, cheering for Hamas, is no different than a group of students celebrating the killing of innocent black people. Though we can imagine how different the campus response with the amendment perspective, both are protected. Wait, but isn't shouting anti-Semitic epithets hate speech? Offensive or hate speech is also constitutionally protected, Including burning a flag or giving a racially charged speech to a restless crowd. But even undeniably protected speech can be off limits in certain contexts. If I come to your neighborhood in the middle of the night and use a bullhorn to tell you what I really think of Joe Biden or Donald Trump, I can be arrested for disturbing the peace. The same thing goes for breaching the terms of a parade permit or not getting a permit at all and blocking traffic. So for any particular incident, you have to drill down on the specific facts. Engaging in what someone, even most people, would consider hate speech won't get you in trouble, but doing so outside Jewish students' dorms at midnight or following Israeli students around to yell at them will land you in hot water. What about the interruption of classes and speakers by protesters? Isn't this just more speech that's protected by the First Amendment? In the campus context, we've learned in the last couple of years, some of us quite personally, that there's a difference between protest and disruption. Student handbooks typically spell out that it's generally fine to hold out pamphlets organize counter events, and otherwise show displeasure with a speaker. But students aren't allowed to shut down events, disrupt classes, or otherwise interfere with university programs. The week before Thanksgiving, Josh Hammer's speech at the University of Michigan was disrupted by anti-Israel protesters. Hammer is Jewish. Meanwhile, a student at MIT commandeered a math lecture to protest what he called the ongoing genocide of Gaza. It's in no way a free speech violation to prohibit students from shouting down professors and speakers. To allow such disruption would be to empower a heckler's ideological affinity or administrative weaknesses and maybe even a misunderstanding of free speech principles, university officials have been hesitant to discipline students for this sort of behavior, which is why it continues. As Yasha Munk, a liberal fed up with campus illiberalism, explained in a pithy X thread, Part of protecting free speech is to punish students who violate the rules that make free speech possible for everyone else. This includes punishing those who violently disrupt talks, and it also includes punishing those who tear down flyers depicting children kidnapped by Hamas. The answer to the free speech on campus is to enforce the rules that sustain it in an impartial manner. Relatedly, students at Columbia, Harvard, Northwestern, and other schools have taken over buildings, threatening to stay until their off-nebulous demands are met. This conduct, again, is not protected by the First Amendment. The students should be removed and disciplined, up to and including arrest for trespassing, not fed burritos as they were at Harvard." There have been reports at many campuses of professors celebrating Hamas's massacre. Is this acceptable speech? Professors have the same free speech rights as anyone else, but HR manuals correctly admonish faculty and administrators not to create hostile educational environments. So the Stanford lecturer who asked Jewish students to leave their belongings and go to the back of the room was rightfully removed from teaching while the school looked into this incident. But Columbia professor Joseph Mossad can write, as he did on October 8th, that Hamas's actions were awesome. The question of whether someone like that should be hired in the first place or granted tenure is different, but he can't be punished for such extramural speech." many of the students who participated in the protests at MIT and elsewhere are foreign nationals. What are their free speech rights as non-citizens? Although foreigners can't be punished for speech any more than citizens, there can be repercussions for affiliating with certain groups or calling for violence. The Immigration and Nationality Act allows the denial or revocation of a visa of any alien who endorses or espouses terrorist activity or persuades others to endorse or espouse terrorist activity or support a terrorist organization. Although the Biden administration is surely loath to deport foreign students, it's hard to argue against the idea that at least some of those rallying around hang glider logos to show support for Hamas meet the visa revocation standard. Indeed, the State Department confirmed to Senator Marco Rubio that it can revoke the visas of Hamas supporters. But MIT declined to take action against demonstrators who prevented Jewish students from attending class, despite warnings that they were violating university policies, precisely because officials knew that many of the harassers were foreign students subject to deportation. The school's refusal to do so effectively gives foreigners, but not Americans, the right to harass, intimidate, and vandalize. Such appeasement of anti Semitism opens the university to claims under the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which brings us to the next question What if an institution knows that Jewish students are being threatened and does nothing, or creates impotent task forces without addressing immediate threats? Or what if officials take ideological sides like an administrator at the University of Chicago who marched with SJP protesters, or egg on a mob shouting down a speaker like Stanford Law's DEI Dean at Judge Kyle Duncan's event in March? This is where Title VI of the Civil Rights Act comes in. Title VI prohibits any entity that receives federal money including student loans, from discriminating on the basis of race, color, or national origin, which the Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights understands to include actual or perceived ancestry, ethnicity, and religion. As part of the launch last May of the Biden administration's National Strategy on Antisemitism, the office issued guidance to remind K-12 and higher ed schools of their legal obligation under Title VI to address complaints of discrimination, including harassment based on Jewish ancestry. The department's most important tool to fight against anti-Semitism, Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona reiterated this month, is Title VI. So the legal landscape is ripe for both administrative complaints and lawsuits, alleging that all these hand-wringing academic grandees have failed to address the very real threats to the physical safety of Jewish students. At Cooper Union, a staffer locked Jewish students in the library for their own protection in the face of demonstrators shouting, free, free Palestine. I'm not sure, offering Jews a chance to hide in the attic satisfies Title VI. Apparently, the Department of Education feels similarly. It recently announced Title VI investigations into Cooper Union and six other schools, including Columbia, Cornell, and Penn. Jewish students are also planning lawsuits. Three NYU juniors have already sued their university asserting a variety of federal and state claims, including Title VI, and breach of contract, not enforcing NYU's own discrimination and student conduct policies. Is it legal to ban or suspend students for justice in Palestine from campuses? SJP is the most prominent anti-Israel, many would say anti-Jewish, organization on college campuses, with hundreds of chapters across the United States and Canada. Immediately following the October 7th attack, its national organization exulted in the atrocities as a historic win for the Palestinian resistance and created a toolkit for its chapters to use on their individual campuses. Since then... SJP has organized countless events at which its members and supporters have celebrated Hamas and called for the elimination of Israel. Some schools have had enough. Earlier this month, Brandeis University withdrew recognition of SJP as a student organization. In an op-ed in the Boston Globe, Ronald Leibovitz, president of Brandeis, wrote, Specifically, chants and social media posts calling for violence against Jews or the annihilation of the state of Israel must not be tolerated. Such speech is SJP's specialty. Notwithstanding Brandeis's robust free speech policy, Leibovitz explained that the school was exercising its right to restrict expression that constitutes a genuine threat or harassment or that is otherwise directly incompatible with the functioning of the university. Other private universities followed suit. Columbia and George Washington University both suspended SJP chapters for violating basic school rules. Notably, the Florida public university system also initially ordered the deactivation of SJP chapters at the behest of Governor Ron DeSantis. Full disclosure, of course, is that DeSantis is my governor. The system's chancellor, Ray Rodriguez, citing the national SJP's alleged ties to Hamas, wrote to university presidents, It is a felony under Florida law to knowingly provide material support to a designated foreign terrorist organization. He recently walked back the decision to ban the chapters, at least temporarily, after two schools raised concerns about potential personal liability for officials who executed the orders. Rodriguez further announced that he'd be seeking assurances from the chapters that they reject violence, that they reject that they are part of the Hamas movement, and that they will follow the law. Those conditions are key to the legality of any action by a public university against SJP. Although government actors can't force students to renounce a particular ideology or otherwise express views they don't actually hold, the phrase material support for terrorism reflects both state and federal criminal codes and may provide an avenue for other schools to curtail SJP activities. The question comes down to the nature of the ties among Hamas, the National SJP Group, and its chapters. The Supreme Court has ruled that the government may prohibit even nonviolent material support for terrorism, including advocacy performed in coordination with or at the direction of a foreign terrorist organization. So if a state can establish that SJP is in effect acting as Hamas's PR agency on campuses, governors would be in the clear to stop taxpayer support. As with cases of true threats and incitement, the devil is in the details. So it's heartening that public officials like Virginia Attorney General Jason Miaris are launching investigations of assorted nonprofit organizations with potential terrorist ties. Some prominent alumni have suggested that businesses not hire students who have joined statements in favor of Hamas. Isn't that participating in cancel culture? A dozen CEOs pledged not to hire the Harvard students who signed in an open letter blaming Israel for an attack on itself. Independent journalists have taken to publicizing the names of students who engage in anti-Semitic speeches. Law firm Winston & Strawn rescinded its offers to NYU's law student body president, who sent a campus-wide anti-Israel statement and then later was caught on camera tearing down posters of kidnapped Israelis. I don't think that any of this qualifies as cancel culture, at least as one defines that term. Perhaps some people think it's permissible, even understandable, to support Hamas, But I can hardly blame a law firm or a Fortune 500 company for not wanting to associate with someone who celebrates gang rape, mutilation, kidnapping, and live incineration any more than I can blame them for not wanting to hire someone who yells at a federal judge, we hope your daughter gets raped, as Stanford law students did. We shouldn't weaken speech protections, which have made America not only the freest country in the world, but the most tolerant. But sometimes speech isn't speech. Sometimes it rises to the level of conduct that prevents others from being able to live their lives. Right now, we need people to discern the difference. The other right that's under threat, of course, is the Second Amendment. And the debate is academic for many Americans. Speculation with friends over what-if scenarios and the concept of God-given rights. On October 7th, Those rights hit home for Adam Adelman, not his real name, and others in New York's Jewish community who were horrified by the Hamas terror attack on Israel. Palestinian protesters were marching just miles from his office. He began recalling his grandparents, aunts, and uncles' accounts of the beginning of the Holocaust. And now, how was he going to protect his family in a state that restricts his Second Amendment rights? Mr. Edelman spoke with newspapers on condition of anonymity out of concern for his family's safety. Well, look, the parallels are there. They're openly screaming death to Jews, Mr. Edelman said. If they had a chance, they would eradicate all the Jews. They would do it. Gun rights activist hailed the June 23rd, 2022 U.S. Supreme Court ruling in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin that citizens have a constitutional right to carry a gun in public for self-defense. They see the decision as the bookend to the 2008 decision in the District of Columbia versus Heller, in which the court ruled that the Second Amendment guarantees an individual a right to keep and bear arms. Since Bruin, 27 states have adopted so-called constitutional carry laws which allow law-abiding citizens to carry a firearm without a license but not all legislatures celebrated in many blue states where strict gun laws are the norm legislatures took the opposite path california oregon illinois washington and other states implemented more firearms restrictions or refitted existing laws to the new standard Washington, Illinois, and Delaware joined the seven other states that banned certain types of semi-automatic rifles, so-called assault weapons. Other states added prohibitions on where guns could be legally carried, expanding their lists of sensitive places. The centerpiece of New York's reaction to Bruin was the Concealed Carry Improvement Act, announced on August 31st of twenty-two. The CCIA increased the training required for a license, expanded the number of places where concealed carry was prohibited, made in-person interviews and a review of an applicant's social media accounts mandatory, and reduced the license recertification period from five years to three years. The state set up a website to explain the new law. Governor Kathy Hochul's office didn't respond to any request of an interview, but in a July 1st speech touting a law mandating background checks for ammunition purchases, she said New Yorkers' Second Amendment rights would be protected. We know this has nothing to do with lawful gun owners, nothing to do with them at all. These are people who have been convicted of felonies or other categories of people that should be prohibited from firearms and ammunition, she said. Mr. Edelman said that the restrictions have turned out to have much to do with law-abiding citizens. He is a federal firearms license holder, a gun dealer, and a New York State and NRA firearms instructor. He said that since the October 7th attacks, demands for his firearms license class have increased as threats from protesters have overridden the political leanings of many in the Jewish community. I live in a very, very liberal area, he said. A lot of those people are coming to me like, what do we need to protect the house? These are the people who never thought they would ever need to buy a gun. Being new to firearms and the laws that apply to them, the students are often surprised at the hoops through which they must jump simply to own a gun. The state requirements can appear daunting. But I would say to all those people who are trying to obtain a weapon to protect themselves, just look at the history of the Holocaust and do what you got to do to protect your family. Please uh, pass this No Restraint podcast around to your friends. And then, of course, when the next one comes out, make sure you're online to listen to it. May God bless you and may God bless the United States of America.